Episode 9 of the BTB Project. Today's guest is the greatest college tennis coach of all time, and arguably the greatest college coach of all time. As the men's tennis coach at Stanford University, in 38 years, his team won 17 NCAA national championships. He holds the record of 776 wins to only 148 losses. He has coached 10 NCAA singles champions, seven doubles champions, and 50 All-Americans, and nine players who have reached top 15 in the ATP World Singles Rankings. Author of Anatomy of a Champion, a book that focuses on championship traits from 189 of his former players, Coach Dick Gould, Welcome to the BTB Project. Don't be afraid of the dark. Be careful with stars. Not every light is gonna guide you, baby. Welcome to the BTB Project, designed to empower listeners to identify their why and to live their best lives no matter the circumstances. My name is Coleman Gerhart, a former athlete and motivational coach. I've had the opportunity to inspire thousands through my story and help accomplish what they are built to be. You'll be encouraged by each and every episode, and let's get into it. Yeah, when I blow up, I'm a so high like Peter Pan. In real life, be living out my dreams. If I'm waking up, it's in a foreign land. Coach Gould, I am humbled and honored to have you join me today on the BTB Project. Welcome. Thank you, Coleman. Gosh, what a great pleasure to be here. I, first thing I ask you, what's BTB? <laughs> and, uh, I got a great reply and it fascinated me. Absolutely. It's, you know, one of those moments that as a tennis player and, and someone that has, has been around the game as long as you have, it's amazing to me to know all the lives you've impacted and really impressed with what you've done with this book, Anatomy of a Champion, and being able to you know, read some of the stories about how you've impacted them as a coach, not just on the tennis court, but more importantly in their life. And I guess really the first question I'm going to ask you is how many times have you done an interview with somebody that has indirectly been impacted by you? Meaning, I know that you have great relationships with your players and the ones that said what they said about you, but I've been impacted by one of your former players. And I'd just love for you to maybe share a little bit about how you came across the BTB podcast and a little bit about one of my greatest mentors. Happy to, Colin, but I think that I'll turn that around a little bit. First of all, as a, as a coach, you know, it's always a teacher in essence. As you know, it's always a two-way street. And oftentimes the coach or the teacher gains twice as much as from his students as they gain from him. And uh, having interacted with them, the tough times, the challenging times, times they weren't listening and couldn't understand why, times maybe I wasn't listening like I should have been, which is key. But then every so often a gem comes along. And you just mentioned one of them, and that was Jeff Salzenstein, one of my all-time favorite players. Mm. Uh, Jeff came in as a really young, young kid. He was a, uh, I'm not sure he even reached, had reached puberty by the time he started college. <laughs> he was about, uh, but he was, at, he was at one of our camps, the Junior Davis Cup camp, the national wow. camp. And you could see he really was well taught by his dad and Miles up in the lot. And he was really well grounded in terms of his fundamentals. And even though he was too young and physically not able to serve in volley or volley, and it was a matter of time until his growth caught up with him, which is often a case in college. Right. Um, that he could change his game and really develop it into an all-court player. And that's when he made his great strides. But uh, people like Jeff are the kinds of people who make my life blessed and, and make me a better person, hopefully, along the way. No, that's a tremendous testament to knowing all the players that you've coached, to know the impact that Jeff had on you. And, you know, it's amazing because him and I are complete opposites as I shared with you before we hopped on the podcast, you know, I struggled more with overweight and trying to find my way as a tennis player by, by trimming down. And Jeff and I always kid about, 
how you wish he could have, you know, <laughs> gained the pounds that I did back then. And, um, you know, he, he eventually did and had a tremendous career. And, you know, I was very fortunate enough to, you know, have him on the podcast and really need to, you know, have that opportunity as a, as a Colorado native to, to speak with someone who's, you know, played at the highest level. And, you know, I know you got to listen to it and I'm curious based off of, not just your time at Stanford, but when you listen to that podcast, what were some highlights that kind of resonated with you? Well, first of all, so many of my players have the benefits of benefit of having great parents. Uh-huh. And Jeff was certainly one of those. I had the pleasure of meeting uh, Jeff's dad early on, but he and his wife had split by then. Jan, I got to know really well. Yep. And then she mailed, married Miles Cortez, who played in one of Trinity's great teams. Ah. And also an incredible person. So so Jeff really had three great role models in his life. And it's obvious from the kind of person he is, a caring individual. He himself now is one of the nation's best teachers. Uh, he listens well. Uh, he was on a, a great undefeated team at Stanford. We don't have those very often. Anybody does. Nobody does. And uh, he just kind of blossomed, I think, physically, and that gave more confidence in terms of his mental toughness on the court. And it kind of all happened at once. And he took these pieces of, of his game, which he was just not physically able to put together when he was 14, 15 years old. By the time he was 18, he could start putting them together. And that's often the case for these kids uh, when they get to college. They've learned one way. They're afraid to change it. They're doing pretty well. But it's only part of the game. Yeah. And so getting them... When their physical status allows it, being able to have them add the aggressive game, the serve and volley, put it all together instead of just keeping it in pieces, really is a joy for me to watch and do. And and we were successful at that. And and Jeff just ate it up. And he had the, he had the great founding foundation that made it possible. Excellent. And you know, I want to obviously go back and and dig deeper into what makes you tick, coach and kind of get a, a true understanding of your why. I've shared this in previous episodes, but I believe a well-established why can overcome any how. And there's so much uh, peaks and valleys that you've experienced in your coaching career. And I want to start with core values. You mentioned in numerous interviews, your parents instilled some core values that helped you along the way. Would you, would you mind sharing those core values and maybe what the most important value is that you still lean on today? Yeah, Coleman, I I don't know that I ever thought of them as core values as I was growing up. Uh, and you're a teacher, you're a coach, and, and all of us are teachers or coaches in some shape or form uh, with our families. Uh, the young, If we were lucky enough to have young children of them, uh, for them, uh, in our business relationships and our friendships. And we don't mean to be, but we are. I think the most effective way to to teach any core values is simply by the way you live, by example. And I think that's just such a critical part of leadership. You can't be someone you're not. You have to be yourself. But what you do by example, you can't say, keep the courts clean when you leave. You have to pick up the papers yourself. And yes. they see you doing that. Then all of a sudden they do that. You can't say it's my living room, keep it clean. It's important to me that you do so. It doesn't mean a thing to them. But when they see you as a leader taking pride in how a place looks, then all of a sudden it starts to ring home to them too as well. I think that's that's really important. I did, my folks divorced when I was in college, right when I started college. And I knew it was coming and I didn't know when it was going to happen. But yeah. So it wasn't a great traumatic experience per se. But both independently were incredible people. My dad was a farmer. Uh, he was at Stanford and studying economics and pre-law. And then depression, depression hit. And so his grand, his father, my grandfather, gave him a little piece of property right next to his property of farmland. Didn't have anything on it then. It was just a hillside. My dad had to tear it, cultivate it, and plant the lemon trees and grow them. And in the meantime, yep. first couple of years of my life, he was also driving a Chevron truck, a standard oil truck around servicing the farms. Okay. And working in them as a mechanic in a standard oil, a standard shell station. And um, so he taught me that you don't get anything if you're not working and that you have to work. And he didn't tell me that. It just, it was obvious. You work for what you get. Nothing's handed to you. 
My mom was an actual teacher. Yeah. Uh, she was substituting as I was growing up, but she was very active in my activities, my sister's and brother's activities all the way through. Uh, by the time I was in high school, she was teaching again full time. I think she, she was really respected and well-liked by her pupils. She brought everything down to a level a little different than teacher-pupil relationship. She kind of got on the same level as the kids, but was still able to hold her respect. One of the key, excuse me, let me go back to the book for a second. I wrote this book, Coleman, because uh, I didn't really, a guy asked me, one of my best friends asked me about halfway through my coaching career. He said, Dick, how do you win so much? And, and here's a guy who's yeah. in the UCLA Baseball Hall of Fame, uh. started a couple of companies in, in Silicon Valley, was the CEO of the big one when, when this conversation occurred. He was there during John Wooden's years as a basketball coach. He was surrounded by, in addition to his own athletic successes, the leadership and example set by John Wooden, even though he didn't play basketball. I couldn't answer his question. I said simply, Jack, we get the best players. And he said, well, that's fine, but a lot of players, a lot of teams have good players, and they never win. Yep. And you manage to win year after year after year. And, and that really stumped me because I couldn't think of why or how this might have happened. If I were to write, try to write a book and say, this is how it all happened, I couldn't do that. No. And I taught a few more years. We won a few more championships. And then I became director of tennis for 14 years and, and was able to implement, timed implement some programs and things within a program that I didn't have time to do when I was coaching. Yeah. Very fulfilling 14 years. And then finally, after 52 years, I retired. I started working as a full-time volunteer concussion education. Yeah. So a whole different switch that way. But it also gave me a little bit of time when I retired to think about what made us tick. Why, why did we win? I wasn't a very good player when I started. I was, a, I was a good player, but I wasn't a great player. And I was always working in the summer on a farm or in the recreation department, teaching swimming, lifeguarding, teaching tennis from about 14 years on up. Yep. So I never played tennis in the summer. So I didn't play enough tournaments to ever be ranked in Southern California, which is not easy, not an easy job in itself. Right. Yeah. Well, in those days. Finally, my last year in the juniors and 18 unders, I played just enough tournaments in the spring and a couple in the summer where I could get a ranking. I was ranked 18th and I was really, and I am very proud of that ranking. But when I came to Stanford, it, I was on the freshman team, which we had in those days. Freshmen could not play in the varsity. And I was five or six in the freshman team, which is not going to set the world afire. But I got better every day by playing every day. Right. At, uh, in high school, I played different sports. Basketball would end in March just before tennis season started. Go, one, go right into the other, play for three months. And that was pretty much it. I didn't really have uh, that much experience as a player. And I kind of developed it as I went, a style of play and so on. But you and I relate. I started playing tennis when I was 14 years old. And well, I started at 11, so I had a couple of years head start on you. And I also had great coaches along the way. And that's, really yeah, that's what I want to go back to is tell me about, you know, 10, 11, you're, you're on a farm, your mom's driving you to what I believe is a swim lesson. And a conversation was had about, you know, you got to try this tennis thing sometime, right? And the troubling part for you was if you didn't try it, you weren't going to be able to ride horses in the summer. So I want to know what would happen, Coach Gould, if you decided to keep driving by that, that tennis court and, I don't know, maybe maybe never came across tennis. Would you well, still be on a probably. horse today? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, actually, uh, that, that story is actually pretty accurate. We, we had a – there was a, a farmer – Lived fairly close. We were seven or eight miles from where our farm ranch, little ranch was. And he had a swimming pool and a tennis court on his property, which in those days was a little bit unusual. Either either one of them was unusual. We would drive to swimming lessons. We had a reservoir in our property. My folks didn't want me to drown in it. So <laughs> we took swimming group swimming lessons at the, this other farm. And on the way to that swimming pool, we would drive right by the tennis court. All of a sudden, out of the blue, she said, you know, I think it'd be a great idea if you took a tennis lesson. And I don't know whether it was a joint decision with my dad or not. He played football at Stanford a little bit. He was on the scrub team for a guy named Pop Warner, a really legendary coach. Yes, and yes. Um, wrestled a little bit at Stanford. My mom was very active in the women's sports. They weren't formal teams as they are nowadays. But 
my folks were athletic and played sports, and but neither of them really played tennis. I really didn't want to be in this little farming community, farming and oil it was. I didn't want to be in this little community of Ventura in Southern California wearing little white pants around. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, no, I'm not going to take a tennis lesson. He said, well, do you want to ride your horse this summer? I said, uh, I'll try a tennis lesson. Right. And I think I got the next piece pretty accurate when you did show up to that lesson and moments before you took the court, there were a couple girls that were 14 years old before you that might've changed your mind about tennis. Can you maybe well, share a little bit about that I'm, moment? I'm sitting there kind of sulking. Sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry for myself for having to be here. And the pro, the teaching pro could see that he knew he had, he was stuck with me next. But on the court before my lesson started, another lesson was just finishing up. Two 14-year-old girls, twin little twins, and they were pretty hot. And I was 11-year-old. The, the hormones were just starting. They had hot pants, they called them in those days, and halter tops. And, man, I thought, hey, this sport might not be too bad. <laughs> Ironically, uh, their brother played at Stanford, which is where my folks both went. And so I had an interest in going there. And And... It turned out later that, in fact, he played tennis at Stanford was a big motivating factor for me. Ah. Ironically, his daughter played tennis at Stanford, and she was on my wife's first champ women's championship team of any sport at Stanford. So it's a small world how the world how, how the world turns and goes around. But my coach was really, really a dynamic teacher, and that was one of the first big life changes in me. It really made me experience how important it was as a teacher to show a passion for your subject matter. And what I can relate to as well, coach, is, you know, what you, and a lot of the, the, the tidbits that I'm finding about you were from the uh, amazing uh, oral history that was done on you <laughs> uh, through Stanford. And it was a nice, you know, six and a half hour listen, but nonetheless, <laughs> I know that a lot of people have asked you about what you've done and how you've done it. And when I'm talking about what makes you tick, I just think it's really neat how your first coach resonated with you, not necessarily by teaching a forehand or a backhand, but in finding ways to, you know, tie in things that, you know, you were passionate about that maybe had nothing to do with tennis that made tennis something ignite for you. Can you kind of speak to that coaching style? Yeah, he, and Sure. He knew I liked sports. And so yeah. everything, every ball I hit was equated to another sport. Rocky Marciano was a heavyweight champion of the world at the time. He said, Richard, he says, you step, you step into the hit like Rocky Marciano steps into the punch. And he said this big booming voice. And he got you all excited when he said that. His, his daughter was a world-class tour player maybe one of the top 10 players in the world at the time, top six. Wow. Nancy Chafee. And she married Ralph Kiner, who was the major league uh, batting champion. So he used Ralph as an example. He said, you watch the ball come off the racket like Ralph Kiner watches it come out of the pitcher's hand. You have to watch that ball closely. So all of a sudden, the sissy sport came alive for me. Yeah. And I couldn't wait to leave that lesson, get home, hit the ball against the garage and it would bounce off the garage onto a gravel driveway, which means it bounced 90 degrees this way, that way, or everywhere except towards your racket. And I, but I couldn't stop. I couldn't put my racket down. I kept trying to hit it back and back and I could not wait for my next lesson. My point is that he made what I was doing exciting mm. by his passion for it and by equating it to something I liked. And that stuck with me forever. And, and every teaching lesson I ever gave since that time, my goal was, through my voice, my actions, uh, never stopped talking during a lesson, was to make the experience exciting for my pupil. Yes. Talking beginning private lessons for little eight-year-old kids, for beginning adults, I'm talking good high school players, great JC players, great college players. Make it exciting what you're doing for them by showing your passion and what you're doing. This was really a big, big lesson for me. Excellent. And you know, fast forwarding a little bit when that passion was ignited. I want to hear about Foothills Junior College. I know that you were really proud of those two state championships that you won there before being hired at Stanford in 1966. 
I'd love to hear more about that experience for you because I, you know, I came from a school that was a, a lower end division one program that had a lot of junior college transfers that would come in after two years. And a lot of them were, were tremendous players. So could you maybe speak to a little bit of that point in your journey? I went to Stanford majoring pre-law, political science, pre-law. I, it was my, my field of study, basically. I wasn't really turned on by it. As I taught more and more in the recreation department in Ventura, both swimming and tennis and lifeguarding, I began to think that I really wanted to be a recreation director, a community recreation director, city director, uh, county director, or something like that. Uh, but Stanford didn't have a recreation major, but they did have a physical education major, and that was the closest thing I could find at Stanford that they offered. I didn't want to leave Stanford. Five-year program, and so uh, I took that as my major, finished in five years. Uh, I started out on a freshman team, about five or six. My sophomore year, I ended up the year number seven, just off the starting lineup, which means you might get into a match or two. Right. In- we were way ahead or way behind. You might get a chance to play some doubles. I was number seven again my junior year. And my sixth year, I was number six. I finally made the starting lineup. And I was getting pretty good, actually. Guys, I couldn't touch my freshman team. I was starting to be, and I was starting to beat intercollegiate players at Davis Cuppers from other countries that I, I couldn't stand the same court with before. And it was a five-year master's program. So I figured out a way with the help of our dean of students in those days, it wasn't so easy that wow. I could get into graduate school, work in my master's without graduating from Stanford. I never graduated from Stanford, but I got my master's there in five years after my fifth year and played tennis that fifth year, which was really important to me. Yeah. Because I was able, I knew I was going into coaching then rather than recreation. And I was able to watch what other coaches did, how they handled their players. I knew what I was going to do for my, to make a living. And that was really, really helpful thing. That's kind of all evolved, and I went got a teaching job at a local high school. I taught in a classroom, health education, sex education, if you wish. <laughs> it was a blast. We didn't have a really strict syllabus to follow. I just one of the requirements <laughs> students had to take, and it was really a fun age for these 14, 15-year-olds to be teaching this. And then I taught uh, driver ed, taught a PE class, and I coached freshman, sophomore football, which I learned a really big, important lesson from. And I also coached tennis in the spring. And then right almost across the street, in the meantime, I got a job working in the summers as a teaching professional at a club. Yeah. And I did that on weekends during the school year and, of course, full-time in the summer every day, seven days a week. And that was literally from 8, to eight, eight in the morning to 8 at night. So my family didn't see much of me. And I was um, just going to ask you that. I mean, the, the lives that you've impacted well, are well, outlined, well, in the, outlined in the book, you know. And I was having a blast. It was yeah. just a hobby. Yeah. I couldn't call it work. And, and the mm. club job, you didn't have retainers in those days. Yeah. So it was a small club. It had a 50 meter swimming pool and a stables, but it was not a tennis club. It had two courts, but all I needed was a court to teach on, but there was no, people wouldn't join the club because of tennis. So I had to build the program up and you can't do that. If you can't afford to be there, if you don't have a retainer and if you're not taking lessons. So I'd sit by the courts all day long. I get the phone name, no, number and name of everyone who came by the courts and get them on my list and call them, say, hey, we're a little mixture this weekend, come on out. And I'd run it and so on. And we get more and more lessons. And then we got filled up and had to build two more courts and four more courts and ended up a beautiful tennis club. But that really taught me a lot about promoting the In the meantime, uh, in a little triangle from where the high school was to where the club was, the third part of that triangle was where a brand new junior college was, Foothill Junior College. And we had about 120 JCs in the state in those days. They were looking for a tennis coach. So I applied. I actually sat on the athletic director's doorstep until he hired me. <laughs> got the job based on my reputation as what I was doing at the club and promotion of tennis and so on. Yeah. And uh, took the job over, and I, I loved it. That was full-time tennis. So I left high school after two years, went to the junior college, Foothill, Foothill College, and absolutely loved it. And... I knew the high school players because that district that it drew from, the districts it drew from were the ones I was coaching in and uh, playing against. And so I knew the high school players and giving lessons to a few of them as well. So I attracted the local players. And then I got really lucky because a great player from Germany was brought by 
pro at a club about 20 miles away uh. to look at the school because he knew he wanted to go to school in the United States and he wasn't quite ready to go to a four-year school. And this guy was really, really good. And he actually turned out winning the state championship and getting to the NCAA quarterfinals for USC. Wow. And then another player, uh, Hawaii descent, Rodney Kopp, was number two in what was the 1500s that year, year, a couple of years earlier. He also was looking for a junior college, and he stayed foothill. So and he won the state championship. And then the third year, we didn't win it, but we were close. The fourth year it was. Uh, Raul Contreras, who was the brother of the Mexican Davis Cupper. Yes. Who went to Modesto JC. And Raul got to round of 32 at the Blaze for San Jose State. So he also, and Rodney was round of 16 for San Jose State. So they were players equivalent to the kind of players I wanted to have at Stanford. So I was working with good players. Yes. Of course, I was kind of full of myself. I thought I knew it all by then, could work with anybody. But you know, all these guys <laughs> have their own coaches telling them what to do. And all of a sudden, here's this guy out of nowhere. Oh, no, try this or do this or whatever. And so I had to learn a little bit of tact and a little bit of approach and different people take different approaches. But I really grew a lot in that job. And then my coach retired at Stanford, yep. the one who encouraged me to combine a club job where I could make some money with a teaching job where I had the benefits and so on of a full-time teacher. Right. Which was my mode of operation. And it turned out to be a great combination. And And so when I went to Foothill, my first question was, Will you make me a full-time coach, not half-time like my predecessor? Yep. At the same salary, I'm making a foothill. And he said, yes. And I said, plus, if I'm going to stop at the club, I need to have use the courts of Stanford to teach. Will you let me do that? And he said, yes. So I was in heaven. <laughs> and, and listen, you know, going to 1966 when you were hired at Stanford, you know, I know that you were really just in the right place at the right time. And they were, you know, looking for someone – and you might have not checked all the boxes, but you just happened to be there and you got hired. But I'm just curious, if you were not hired at Stanford, would you have stayed at, at a JUCO and had yes. a coaching I, career I, for years at that level? It's a great area. I was at a great club. I love the junior college coaching. We did a lot of great things there. We started a, a really strong tennis patrons organization to support the area use, including those of college age who were non-self-supporting, which meant my junior college kids. Exhibitions there to stimulate interest in the area. We had Dennis Ralston, Chuck McKinley when they yes. were Wimbledon number one in the world. Uh, we have Poncha Gonzalez, Poncha Gura, Rod Labor. Wow. All the boys playing on wood. And <laughs> wow. so with 3,000 people. So that was pretty new in that in that era. And of course I'd hang in there and play doubles with Segura against Labor, against Gonzalez, and then another local pro. So that was, we did a lot of good things there. And I think that, that and the fact the manager of Fremont Hills Country Club was a former fraternity brother, although, albeit a few years earlier, and a great pitcher at Stanford in baseball. He was close to the athletic director then. I think he put a good word or more for me for the Stanford job. And that was a big thing to help me get the job there. But then my point was that in the meantime, by starting in the high school in the area yeah. and by then in the junior college, the same area. I had I had a little bit at least a local reputation, which was a good one. So that really helped me a lot. But to answer your question directly, if I had not been out for Stanford, the job at Stanford, I'd still be at Foothill. Ironically, when I left Stanford to when I left Foothill to go to Stanford, my best friend from high school, my doubles partner all through junior high school and high school, the guy who with me started tennis in junior high school in a seventh grade PE class, beginning PE class, although I'd had a couple of private lessons on him from the summer. <laughs> He had got a teacher and get out. He played at Wyoming on a scholarship. Okay. So he Washington State, got his master's degree. And he was teaching, coaching tennis, teaching high school in Costa Mesa and coaching basketball down there. And he loved it. Orange County, beautiful area. And I said, well, why don't you just come up and look at this job? He said, no, 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 I love it. I'm no, I don't want another job. I'm going to stay here forever. Well, I talked him into coming up and he was offered the job on the spot and thought about it and wow. took it. Okay. So, and business partners and some other stuff we did. And so it was nice having you still my best friend this day. That's awesome. And, you know, getting to, yes, being hired at Stanford and, you know, starting this uh, amazing legacy that uh, you have today, you know, reflects back to a quote that I came across that you were really intrigued by from, I believe, Al Davis with the Oakland Raiders that talked about the 
Red Queen that told Alice, you got to run fast. And once you get there, you got to run twice as fast. And I also want to say that you have been adamant about the importance of teaching people that it's okay to make mistakes. So to know that you're in this position and maybe not qualified, you feel like you're a nobody or whatnot, how did you run fast those first couple of years at Stanford? And what were some mistakes you made that you had to overcome? I made plenty of mistakes. Uh, I, I think, Goldman, that uh, we had been good at Stanford. I think my coach had been there for 16 years, 17 years. And he'd never finished out of the top 10 at Stanford went in the national championships and uh, the rankings. Uh, they're a little different than they are now, but, but still we were a good team. We we're probably, I think our average finish was six or seven over that time. So he had never been out of the top 10. And I came in with these big ideas. I told my athletic director when I was hired, I told my friends, I even told my recruits, I think we can win a national championship Stanford. I don't see why we can't. We have good weather, great interest in local interest in tennis. It's going to be a hotbed. But that was in the year just before the indoor court craze. And so most of the great planners, players were in Southern California, some in Texas, and some in Florida and, and elsewhere. But those were the main hotbeds. Yeah. So I recruited really hard in Southern California and got a few players there. But I missed some players. And I don't know in recruiting again whether I would have done it any differently with them, talking about making mistakes. I don't. I think they all wanted to go somewhere where there's an established program, and we had a good program. But the difference between USC and UCLA were perennially the top two players teams in the country. Occasionally, Trinity University of Texas would sneak in there uh, with kind of a maverick team that was really good. Like one year they had Buckholz, Froiling, and yes. McKinley on the same team. Great team, but they didn't play any in plays that year. They were so good when their college season ended, uh, dual meet season ended. They hopped in a plane. And instead of playing the displays, went to England to get used to the grass for Wimbledon, whereas SUCA players would play in the national championship and go straight to Wimbledon and play in the grass the next day. So uh, Trinity was better than, was good then, better than people really knew about. But, and I was recruiting against them, uh, my first few recruits. A lot of disappointments in those days, almost making it, but then losing it, almost making it, losing it, getting a good player, and he transferred, getting another good player. He quit and turned pro. When I started turning pro, wasn't a problem. Yeah. The 1968 Open Tennis came along. A couple of years later, these, these players are making some money, and everyone was looking for the next great American. So they were offering contracts and all kinds of incentives as an agent yes. to the next red-hot American out there. And so I was having to recruit them all over again once we were in school. And uh, it, was, it was an interesting thing. I think one mistake is that uh, I made – and that is that uh, just because something's your goal, it doesn't make it a player's goal. Right. And I remember one of the first team meetings we had, it was a nice spring day, and we're sitting out there with my my group of players, and we're just talking. I said, guys, someday we're going to win the national championship. And one of my players wrote in a book, and he ended up being in his way, singles, uh, doubles finals with Roscoe Tanner. Yes. You're a good player, but he wasn't of the caliber we got late, had later. Later. And he said, uh, I said, we're going to win someday. And he just, we looked at each other and rolled our eyes and said, coach, it's never going to happen here at Stanford. We just don't care that much about tennis, frankly. And of course, in those days, you had the Vietnam protests, Cambodia war bombings, Kennedy assassination, Martin Luther King. It was a tough time to be a student. And if tennis wasn't already a priority, it was really a tough to make it a priority in those days. So those were good challenges. We did happen to win it finally. Gave a real good effort in 72. And then almost won it in 70, and did win it in 73, the Roscoe Tanner and Sandy Mayer in 74. Yeah, and I want to talk about 74 here in just a sec, but to, to take a and quick, then, yeah. Real, let me finish up, but then, then in 77, uh, we won it that year too, but also that was the year Al Davis's team won the Super Bowl. I see. And so I saw a quote in the paper said Al was the general manager and owner of the, of the Raiders at that time. And this pre-season pre press conference, they were asking him, Al, you won it last year. You're going to win again this year. And he said, well, we won it last year, but it's really hard to win it again. It's like the Red Queen told Alice. 
you have to run as fast as you can to get somewhere. Mm. And once you get there, you have to run twice as fast to stay there. And that really hit on it for me. And I thought that to show I was relevant, and especially as I kept coaching year after year after year, I had to keep showing that I was relevant and doing things. I felt that every four or five years I had to do something that had never been done before that would impact tennis in general, not just my program, but in general, and or something better than had ever been done before to raise the standard of it. So that was my goal, and we managed to do that. But that that was really an important lesson for me. Now, I know that first national championship you won, one of the things that you kind of mentioned as far as a mistake was was talking about winning so much and and wanting to win so bad and having that be the catalyst. With all due respect, I think it's fascinating to me to see that you really created a winning culture after that first national championship. But how were you able to kind of pull back that that competitive spirit that, you know, that will to win and and have it be more about the culture you've created rather than saying just go out and win? A couple of things. I I was so obsessed with proving to myself ego wise with winning a championship, proving it could be done after I told everyone I thought it could be done. Even my own players who laughed at me because that goal was not synonymous to any goals they had. They couldn't understand that goal. It was way beyond them. As a leader, you have to be careful that you set goals they can relate to. Mm. And that was one big lesson I learned early on, an important lesson. But there were some side effects of that. Uh, that persistence of staying after it was a big one for the players to see. You asked about core values. I didn't really have any core values. I didn't say, okay, guys, here's what Stanford tennis is, one, two, three, four, five. I didn't have any core values. I was coaching by the seat of my pants. I never read a coaching book <laughs> on how to do this or how to do that. And I think most, many of us are in that same situation. Right. So it was interesting for me. And and I had to learn that my goals better be synonymous with them. We finally reached this thing. I got the monkey off my back. I proved to myself, my ego, which was really in my way, that it could be done. And I became a much better coach. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I, I didn't care if I, we ever another, won another one. Yep. We proved it can be done. That was my goal. But all of a sudden, Roscoe turned pro, and I knew we weren't going to win it then. Sandy Mayer went, so Roscoe, Roscoe had already turned pro after a close second-place finish. And then, so we won over Sandy Mayer, Mayer playing number one, the first time in 73. We won again in 74, but Sandy quit the team. Yeah, and that's what I want to I want to get into, because, listen, you've talked about in your book and – you know, in, in articles that I've read, you know, your one of your greatest teams was 1998, and you know, you you had the powerhouse team and blew people off the court. But in 1974, you really had to problem solve. You had a lot of moving parts that you had to navigate with your players in order to pull off something. And what I believe is one of your most incredible national championships. Can you? As you were as you were saying, walk us through the Sandy Mayer story. It's like Murphy's Murphy's Law. When everything's going well, something's going to happen. <laughs> you better be, prepared, better be prepared for it. And in this case, I mean, I've been through a lot of pitfalls or a lot of disappointments with uh, recruits ready to come to Stanford, then last minute deciding not to. One was whether Zan Gurry was going to be one of my first recruits, along with Stanley Passarell. That went back and forth with the two of them. Neither one of them wanted to be the only guy coming to Stanford. One would come if the other didn't. I ended up getting Stanley, losing Zan. Another was Dickie Stockton. He came to high school in Palo Alto was last year for one month and then left and went home because Stanford hadn't started yet. And he was going to be practicing every day with Stanford players. It was legal in that time, just across the street from Palo Alto High School. So I've been through a lot of ups and downs before trying to get this thing started. And then we finally did, and and we had a great team coming back in 74, and I did, I had changed a little bit because I started talking to myself more in terms of getting better and getting in, and where we needed improvement and improving rather than on winning. In 73, 72, 71, 70, I was saying, guys, if we do this, we can get here. We've got to do this so we can get here. That was putting unbelievable pressure on the guys, and I don't know whether it cost them any matches, but it wasn't a good way to coach. And I think I was a much better coach when I said, let's, let's, in my mind, let's think about improvement. But we'd improved a lot that year, and we're actually playing very, very well. And then just before the Inch Blaze, our final competition was our conference championship. 
And we had a little love triangle start to develop in the team between two players who were really good friends and a girl who was on the Foothill College women's team. Okay. And we go to our conference championship, and it happens to be in a town called Ojai, and they also have a junior college division. So she's down there also, and it hit the fan. Mm. I could see this developing a little bit, and I just, oh, my gosh. And so at that time, at that point, Sandy just uh, decided he couldn't stay on that team and be looking at one of his best friends every day across the net and still carry on his relationship. I don't want to get into something personal, but. Yeah, right. For whatever reason, he decided the best thing I can do for everyone's sake is to leave the team. So he never came back to the team after that. There goes the championship. Well, and then another guy got hurt and couldn't play with a wrist injury. So all of a sudden, John Whitling, who was number three, moved up to number one. That wasn't a team competition in those days. We had only four players could play in the singles. And your top four. And Chico Hagee was number six or seven. He moved up to number four. And they ended up playing each other in the finals. And we win enough matches to win it again. Wow. And that was that blew my mind. I mean, these guys just had big hearts. Jimmy Delaney was on the team the second year. Sandy the first year. And that year with John Whitlinger. Won the doubles championship. Some other great players came through really well. Then we'd lost one in 76. We yep. had a great chance when we were way ahead in individual points going into the quarterfinals, we just blew it. And that was my fault as a coach. So I cost us one there, and then we won it in 77 and 78 and took off. Absolutely. And, you know, I know that you said you don't really have a a syllabus to hand out to coaches being like, hey, here's how to have one of the greatest college tennis resumes ever. But one thing I think you excelled at that I'd like to dig into a little bit deeper that I can relate to myself is how you recruited and, you know, your ability to send a letter to somebody that was, you know, just a a simple gesture. It wasn't much, but being able to send those handwritten letters, can you speak to where that came from? How did you develop that, that mindset of, Hey, you know, this is a way that I can connect with people because in today's day and age in 2023, I'm wondering if that same type of gesture would still be effective today. So can you maybe speak to how you came across that mindset? And do you think it would be effective in 2023? Not effective because no one does it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You couldn't send an email and you only had so many phone calls a week you were permitted, but you could write them as much as you wanted. Right. Uh, I think I had an advantage because my writing is so bad. No one can understand what I said. <laughs> I just, uh, thought of Mine's pretty much. bad too. That's why I'm always speaking into microphones instead of writing stuff. That's right. There you go. <laughs> so anyway, so, uh, but that, I, I, we had a football coach. Stanford had a very tough time in athletics in the fifties and sixties. And even the early seventies, we just weren't winning in any sport. I think golf won in 53, maybe. Swimming might have won it in 67, but we weren't even really close. Our football team, my last year in college, was 0 and 10, as an example, when I was a student. So I came in the negativism, negativism within our department amongst all the coaches and the athletes was really, really tough and rampant. We can't win because we can't get the good athletes in, or good athletes can't don't have time to be good students as well. We'll never win here at Stanford. Just a ton of alibis. And hired just about the time I was, was a fellow for football named John Ralston. Yes. John was extremely positive. He taught, coached at Denver. Yes. Broncos football. Extremely positive. He hired great people to be his assistants. Uh, and I could know John pretty well because, in essence, we almost started together. He was a really positive guy. I never, ever heard him make an excuse. I never heard him do anything but accept the blame for any mistakes or losses himself not put it on the players or on his assistants. He didn't, we didn't have a big staff that time. We didn't have a lot of secretaries. He would answer all his emails and phone calls himself. He would do it immediately and promptly. He answered every note right when he got it. And that really had a big influence on me. And Ah. I like to think to me, the biggest compliment would be that if people thought that the two of us had some, some help, some, if we had some influence on changing the general perception of negativism to a positive attitude, Stanford athletics speaking from that point on, yeah. Stanford does not look back. Yeah, and it's you know, positivity and uh, 
you know, conquering self-doubt and self-sabotage, you know, Jeff has talked to me about that a lot. And he said, a lot of that came from, from you. And it's really neat to hear, you know, John Ralston being a, an impact to you. And absolutely, it's really interesting tying in the, the Broncos. I'm really astonished to see all of the similarities between Stanford and the Denver Broncos right now, you know, on the back of your book, you have kind of Lisa, you know, that gave you a nice um, endorsement on the back of your book. I know that you've had yeah. conversations with, with Jim Harbaugh, who we tried to get as a coach here, but he wanted to stay at Michigan and I'm really impressed by, you know, in tennis, it's not common that there's a lot of relationships with, with football. And I'm just curious, you know, what, besides your past, you know, what draw drew you to seeking out these staff members at Stanford that were in other sports that, you know, you know I don't think it's just football. I think, you know, coaches, there's something about the coaches fraternity. I think that, uh, yeah. you know, generally speaking, coaches are positive. They all see the glasses overflowing or much more than half full. I think most of them are really serious about being able, loving the job because they feel they can have an impact on their kids. Sure. They want to win. Now they have to win, but, uh, it was, it's, if I were to pick someone as a friend and I had a choice, just looking at the professions, I probably wouldn't pick an attorney as my best friend. I don't see a lot of smiles in that profession. Medicine, I don't know. But boy, coaches are usually upbeat, positive, and fun to be around. Fun to be around. I know when we started out, my first year, we mentioned I mentioned Stanford had never been out of the top 10 my since world ever since they started ranking teams. And my first year, we were, I think, 16th in the country. My next year, my second year, we're 33rd in the country. I didn't even know that many schools had tennis teams. <laughs> right. I just lost another potential recruit who could have turned our program around. I didn't know where I was going. And then we finally got freshmen finally eligible in our conference. And I took four freshmen, five freshmen in the national championship. Uh, one played doubles only, and the other four were singles players. Uh, you said all of them were freshmen? Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. One of those, one of those after one year transferred because no one, Roscoe Tanner hadn't signed his letter of intent yet. Yes. He's coming in. It's just going to be me again. Paul Gherkin, he transferred to Trinity of all places uh. and ended up on the team that beat us for the final in the finals that year. But Paul Gherkin, Matt Claflin, and three other freshmen from uh, a couple of them, Southern Cal who were really good players. We finished, I think that year we were back in the top 10 at number seven or eight in the country with all freshmen. Their only competition was in the national championship. Boom. And uh, so we were on our way at that point and had really turned a corner. And I know you've recruited just so many outstanding players and I am intrigued by the underdog stories because what I can relate to is, you know, I, I didn't have, the, the national ranking. I never competed in a Colorado state championship, never qualified. I was never recruited and I walked on to a division one program and I was, I was taking scholarships rather than, than being given to me. And out of all of the years that you coached at Stanford, is there somebody that comes to mind that was, you know, maybe a, a lower tier recruit or, I don't know if you guys had walk-ons, but, you know, more or less just somebody that at the end of their, you know, career, you look back and you're like, wow, that is somebody that uh, did something pretty incredible. Has someone come to mind? Yeah, a lot of players do. Um, I, myself, much like <laughs> you, had no scholarship. I was a walk-on. Coach didn't know me from Adam. Made the freshman team barely, and uh, and so I stuck around and got a little better. When I had a chance to play good players every day, took advantage of that. We started out, they decided to fund me for scholarships and they didn't fund my predecessor very much, but we had, we ended up at one time, we had eight players in scholarship. Okay. Wow. And that was gigantic. Yes. Then they cut us back to four and a half and gave the girls eight to make up for football in title nine. Yes. And that really helped. One really good outcome of that was it really leveled the player in college athletics teams because if you took three and a half guys that would have gone to SC, UCLA, or Stanford, then they all went somewhere else, two or three other schools. Then all of a sudden you have six schools, seven schools who are good, not just three or four. And that was a gigantic move. So then I have players that 
I had no scholarship. I was recruiting. Um, I, one comes to mind was a triple crown winner, uh, Alex O'Brien. Oh, came wow. to Stanford on no scholarship. Unless guys turn pro prematurely, he wouldn't get one. But he came and he won the NCAA singles, won the NCAA doubles, won the NCAA team championship. Wow. First triple crown winner since John Whittlinger. And there were a lot of other players who came on half scholarships uh, because I didn't have a full one available. And we made our living with those guys that did that. Jeff Saul's team. Yeah. He wanted to have scholarship. And here's a guy that played number one for me and on a great team, as it turned out. You know, I think there's a part of this. I think today in the world, there's a – in tennis, we're given a lot. Yes. We get, on a, we get a on a free list, so to speak, and we get free rackets. Or we get free shoes. We get a sponsor. Someone gets us a sponsor. We get these little – Idiocentric, thing, idiocentric things, and we start thinking we're really good and really deserve a lot. And it's almost like we feel we're entitled. Mm. My parents have given all these kinds of lessons. I've gotten pretty good. I deserve a scholarship. So it becomes an ego thing. If they don't have a scholarship, who wants to say, I'm going for free? Um, it implies the coach doesn't care that much about you, doesn't think you're that good. And everyone else is telling you you're God's gift to mankind. Uh, so that was a tough thing to overcome, and, and we were successful in doing that, partly because Stanford, the school, is so great. A lot of other players had done it before other players and had won titles and championships with it. So so that was really a big, big key for us. And I would say another thing really helped when we only had four and a half scholarships. Our guys down the line were really good. We had a lot of depth. Yeah. All these guys weren't on scholarship either. I'm a coach. And you're the athlete. If you're on scholarship, you're going to feel pretty good if there are only four and a half out there because coach pretty much has to play you. But when you think about it, I'm going to play the guys who are playing the best at a given time because they're the ones who are going to save my job, not the people who are on scholarship and maybe didn't, maybe didn't pan out as well or going through a hard time or a rough patch as we all do in college. And it affects our play. So when you think about it, that, that's, not, that's a fallacious argument. A coach is going to play who the best player is regardless. I appreciate you walking me through just the landscape of how you recruit and scholarships and some of the underdog story. You know, one of the things that I've noticed and I'm sure you do too. And I want to get your, your insight is, you know, my program university of Northern Colorado got cut amongst not just the men, but also the women's program about three years ago. And you see tennis, Actually, you know, with COVID, a lot of these programs are being cut. What are your thoughts about the landscape of college tennis today, knowing that it's not maybe at some schools a big revenue-generating sport like a, like a basketball or a football? What do you think the state of tennis is in 2023? And do you see more programs being cut, or do you see a, a bounce back at some point? Well, first of all, I think Title Title IX is a great thing. I have three daughters who are, play college sports. Two of them are captains of the respective teams. One in one in uh, water, one in uh, swimming, and one in uh, uh, volleyball. Another one, if she'd been able to keep on without knee surgery, what might have been in tennis. So uh, they none of them were on scholarship, but they basically have benefited from the era of Title IX emphasis in women's sports. It's been a great thing. But on the other hand. In an effort to equalize things, football has so many scholarships, they took a lot away from the men. I hate to see the women on the team have training table where the men can't. I can't have four guys eating a special dining room if the other eight guys can't, yeah. whereas most of the women's team can, as an example. Uh, I, I just can't. The fact they didn't do it by sport when they did Title IX and not try to put football in the mix, and there was a big argument about that when Title IX was enacted. But uh, the fact that it was overall has really hurt sports like tennis. And so when you talk about drop programs, yes, a lot of women's programs are being dropped too, but men's programs have been dropped two to one over women's programs. So I think the men really, and especially early on, really paid a price on that. Uh, and still continue, there should be six scholarships for each. I feel very strongly about that. Uh, the other thing that I think we have to realize as coaches is that we are an endangered species in sports and sports like tennis, not just tennis and sports like tennis, because very few or none of us are generating uh, income generating sports. Uh, with that in mind, I started raising money for endowments 
in the early 80s. I started raising wow. money for scholarships and so on. And when I left Stanford as director of tennis, we were we had built our stadium in, for a total of over $20 million. We didn't have a penny from the university or the athletic department to help us, but they let us raise the funds. And that, that facility now would cost $80 million. Uh, but that was one thing that we did. And we also have our whole program endowed, the men's coaching position, uh, the director of tennis position, the assistant coaching position. Uh, all of our four and a half scholarships are endowed uh, specifically for men's tennis. Uh, the surplus from the scholarships with the donor's permission has been used to endow our entire operating budget at the amount we're allowed to operate at. And there isn't a level we can operate at. Uh, and we have a maintenance endowment and a repair endowment for our facilities, which bring in over $100,000 a year. I left there with our com program completely endowed. Now, whether it is today or not, I don't know. Right. But when I left there, it was completely endowed for specific for men's tennis. And I'm really proud of that because I, w I was running scared. That was one of the things Al Davis has yeah. so much to me for. Uh, if we want to ensure we're going to be here and we're, we don't know that, especially in sports like mine, yeah. We better get off our ass and take it on as a job responsibility and a job description, frankly, even though they say, oh, no, you'll always be fine because that's not the case necessarily. And if you want to ensure your, ensure your existence, you better do your best to get your program as funded as possible. And one thing I'm so impressed with, Coach, is, yes, your ability to fundraise and, and support the game of tennis and, and Title IX, as you mentioned, but I actually got a chance to be a visitor to the tennis facility at Stanford. And this was back in the early 2000s. And I had a good friend of mine who played uh, for Pepperdine. And this was oh. when you guys were hosting the, the men's and women's national championship. And I got to watch him uh, serve out the, the doubles point and, and Pepperdine ended up winning the national championship. So can you maybe speak, uh, you know, just to that, the facility and, what it means to you to even drive by it or, you know, walk into it. I mean, what does that mean to you today after stepping away from, uh, from being the director of tennis? I really am proud of that. I, I, our players really instrumental in this. Uh, we have, I think in our department, athletic department, by far the per highest percentage of donors of any sport are the men's tennis players. I think they really supported what we've done. I think that, all our players, men and women together, have worked hard to interface with the public and and go out and do activities with the public that have impacted their time a little bit on weekends, perhaps, but also have come back and uh, gained us friends in the community that have been able who have been able to help us in our fundraising. I made very few asks directly in my fundraising. I might have I might have made half dozen face to face asks. They're all notes, <laughs> written notes. Hey, we're doing this. Would you be interested in helping us? And attached to a little flyer or something like that. Uh, we need your help. No one would be interested. Always never one to put anyone back anyone in the corner. And only a few direct asks. But that's because we worked hard to build up a base of loyal fans along the way. And and it's interesting because once we had the facility here, which probably is the nicest one in California, then we could start holding events. So we held the Bank of the West here for 22 years, which had Every top women's player in the world will hear from Feisters to Sharapova to the Williams sisters to Davenport to Austin to, I mean, it was amazing. Sellis, just on and on and on. Every one of them had played here. And that brought a lot of interest into our, into our house area and school for tennis. Now they've decided they don't want to have big, big things like this on campus anymore. For outside events, I was a tax fear of tax, uh, property tax liability, or what it might be. But right, well, the Bank of the West got told goodbye about five years ago. So now we, in Blaze, we were twice. In fact, uh, one of the things we did was to initiate the first NCAA combined men's and women's championship, yes. which was a tremendous synergy. Really proud of that and how how well it went. We raised a million dollars in addition to our budget. Wow, so that really really special. I'm really proud of that. And the streaming went along with all some of the side things we did. It was really, really special. But now uh, they're going to be tearing down a facility. Oh, wow. And uh, <laughs> on the same footprint of land, putting in, it looks like, six courts side by side, a total of 12, and covering the courts across the street, all six courts. Ah, okay. So, so there are some good things coming out of it. It'll be a big, we won't have a big stadium anymore. 
but uh, but we don't need to if we're not going to be able to have events, big events. So it's a uh, in a lot of ways be better, but in other ways it'd be a little more difficult. Yeah. Last piece I want to touch on coach, you know, you spoke about uh, teaching aids, the, the movement that you have to help with concussions and you're wearing the, the EPAT sweatshirt. <laughs> I am just really impressed with how you've given back to, to East Palo Alto. And maybe that's from your roots of, of, you know, being a farm guy and given opportunity wherever you can. Can you maybe just speak to by, the mission of that outreach? and By example, again, I think it's really important we talk about entitlement, mm. that our players realize that they've earned some privileges, perhaps, but people made that possible because yeah. they gave up something to help them. And one of the biggest things we ever did was try to impress upon the players that they have a responsibility to give back to others. EPAD is an underserved, it, it was 1983, I think it was the, or 86, the homicide ca uh, capital of the world per capita, yeah. mostly drugs, and a predominantly, in those days, black area. And that's what started EPAD, as, a, as an anecdote to that. And my team got very involved in that. And one of my players, Jeff Aarons, an All-American, started that program 35 years ago this year. And so I'm really proud of that. And then then little things like uh, the concussion thing, that's a nonprofit. I'm sitting in that office right now. Their first job was to instigate HIV education in 82 countries throughout the world, places wow. that UNESCO and the Gates Foundation could not get into and went out personally and got into those countries and developed the education and took that, once it was firmly in place throughout the world, took that method and picked another topic, which was concussion education. So it's really fun for me to be volunteering full-time to, uh, and my boss takes a dollar a year and that's it, to be developing things for coaches, for students, and for their parents of all ages, and awareness of concussion. And it's amazing that steps are being taken now to, in this regard throughout the world, actually. That's a unbelievable movement, and I appreciate you diving in on, on that outreach. And from the bottom of my heart, I appreciate all you do with that. And that leaves me with just one last question, okay? The, the obvious you know, 17 team national champions, uh, 10 individual, seven in doubles. May I ask, how many wife of the year awards did your wife get being by your side throughout all of those championships? Because I've had two, I've had two wives going through true confession. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, just, I mean, the support from your significant other has to, has to be, Tremendous. So can you well, let can me you... go back a little bit? My first child was born when I was playing in the uh, Northern California Intercollegiate Championship. Okay. Uh, before the ITA hosted by Stanford at that time in that particular year. And I was running back and forth from the hospital. Uh, I think I just had beaten Whitney Reed, who was number one in the world in the United States at the time, played for San Jose State. I just had a win over him in doubles, ran the hospitals, saw the childbirth, came back. Once the child was born, okay, and the tournament director was a friend of mine. He postponed the match, didn't default me. He said, oh, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And uh, then my second child was born in a tournament. I was running a big tournament at Foothill Junior College for out-of-the-area people, and she was born during that tournament, so I didn't even see her childbirth because <laughs> no one else was going to be able to run the tournament at the time. It was a one-man job. My poor first wife had to put up with all of that. <laughs> My second wife was a coach, actually. I hired her because she worked in our Tom, the, rec, the teaching program Tom and I ran. Yeah. And would hire and train teachers. And I'm really proud of the people who worked in that program, really some great, great people in the world of tennis today, even. And so she understood a little more. She won the first women's championship in any sport uh, at Stanford in, during Title IX and started the whole string of things there. So, but she didn't like coaching. So after four years, uh, she was out of it. She didn't want to do it anymore. But I must say, they and my kids deserve a lot because they've been through a lot. And yeah, it's one of the big things you have to face in any job. And my job has always been my hobby. Right. You can't it, you can't be the best coach in the world. You can't be the best. When people say be the best you can be, I qualify that always say, be the best you can be commensurate with the amount of time you want to put into it. Yes. So you can't be, if, if I were the best parent, I could be the best parent I could be and the best father I could be, I wouldn't have a job. If I were the best 
I could be in my job even. I'd come, I wouldn't come home to family at night. Right. So you, you can't be the best you can be. You can be the best you can be commensurate with the time you're put into it. Hopefully you balance it a little bit, but it's hard for me when my living was dependent upon how hard I worked because I never was paid very much here, that much by Stanford or nor at the club or high school teaching I did. So that was a part of it. And and the other part of it was I was driven that way. The other part of it, I really loved what I was doing. Yeah. And I, the, when you innovate, rather than just open a can of balls and tell someone to step into a forehand or turn or whatever, that takes a lot of time to germinate the idea and then to design it and address it and bring it to fruition. But I always really enjoyed doing that. And it really be, really was a great hobby for me. I've been very, very blessed, Coleman. Coach Gould, it's been a tremendous honor to spend some time with you today. I've taken a tremendous amount of knowledge away from our conversation, and I know the listeners have too. Thank you so much for joining the BTV Project and continue to inspire and encourage, motivate and support the way that you have, Coach. Thank you. Thank you, Coleman, and keep up the great work. I, I loved your interview with Jeff Salzenstein. You couldn't have picked a better subject and uh, just a great man. And that's the, the kind of person that I've really, really enjoyed working with at Stanford. Excellent. I appreciate you, Coach.